is our only hope. And ladies and gentlemen, he is a sure hope. If your faith is in him, he has not only saved your soul, but he will take you to a complete salvation, to eternal glory, to glorification, and even redemption of the body. So I'll begin by saying Happy Mother's Day. And I'm in the wrong place here. I usually don't break away from our series, but because I'm in between and actually making some decisions about the future, I decided to break away for this Mother's Day. And so we will specifically direct our attention to the ladies. However, if you're one of the other only two genders or the other one gender, not two more, <laughs> I'm getting all messed up here. <laughs> Do not be dismayed because these truths are applicable to you and me as well. We often find in Scripture that God's servants give thanks to the Lord for godly ladies. Certainly ladies, wives, and mothers are important. They're of the utmost importance before God. It was certainly through the seed of the woman that God sent forth his son to bear the sins of man and to rise from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And we must remember this morning that men and women are spiritually equal before God. In Galatians 3.28, Paul wrote that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And man, I'm going to state the obvious for you, but your existence as a man is dependent upon a woman, your very mother. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth, has his birth through the woman, but all things originate from God. Also, we both men and women are referred to as sons of God in Christ, because we have all the rights and privileges before God likened to a son in Jewish culture. We all have an equal part in the inheritance which belongs to Christ. However, in this life, unlike the propaganda of this age, men and women have distinct different roles. Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 2 of that book, that epistle, Paul argues that in the church, women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And he bases his position on this. Verse 13, for it was Adam who was first formed and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived <coughs> fell into trans trespass or transgression. Verse 15, but she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Paul's first argument is the creative order. This is the supreme argument here. Adam was formed first and then Eve. The woman was created for the man as his suitable helper. But she is not, she is certainly not of lesser value than man before God. She has a subservient role that God has assigned to her. 
just as God has assigned to men a specific role. Paul refers here to the fall in his second argument, that the woman being deceived and fell into trespass or transgression. Paul technically does not derive the woman's role from her deception, but uses the fall to further collaborate God's intention. When Eve stepped out from under the protection and leadership of Adam, she was vulnerable and fell into transgression. She demonstrated that she had stepped outside of the role that God had designed for her. And while it is true that salvation came through the seed of the woman, Paul in verse 15 refers to the woman as being saved from the stigma that resulted from being deceived by the serpent. But when a woman raises godly children, they are freed from that reputation of having led mankind into sin. And yet this is only true if she continues in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. But a selfish, ungodly woman perpetuates and confirms that very stigma. She must make the most of the opportunity that God has given her as a wife and a mother, just as we all must make the most of the opportunities that God has given us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, Paul addresses all believers, and he writes this, Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul is talking about our habit of life, the believer's lifestyle, a lifestyle that has the destination of holiness. Notice it is a careful walk. Careful means accurately, exactly, diligently. It involves looking, examining, investigating with great care. It also carries the idea of alertness. An analogy might be to imagine walking through a minefield. You would certainly need this kind of care, this kind of diligence, this kind of alertness to know where to step. And so as we as believers walk through this world, a spiritual minefield, if you will, we must walk carefully, accurately, diligently with all alertness. This careful walk is also a wise walk in that it has this characteristic that of redeeming the time because the days are evil. Paul does not use the word chronos here, the term for clock time, measured in hours and minutes and seconds. Rather, he uses karyos, which denotes a measured, allotted, fixed season or epoch, a period in history, an opportunity, if you will. Paul also uses it with a definite article. It's ha karyos. It indicates a fixed season, a fixed opportunity. You see, God has set boundaries for our lives. My opportunity as a man for worshipful service exists only within the boundaries he has set for me. God has sovereignly bounded our lives with eternity. God knows the beginning and the end of our time on earth. God has chosen our very days. Remember Job declared in verse or chapter 14, verse 5, since his or man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart 
of wisdom. God has numbered our days, and so must we. We are to make the most of the opportunity that God has given us. As believers, we are to redeem our predetermined days. When we think of that word, redeem, we think of it in relation often of salvation. Redeem, agorazo, is to buy out of. It's used of buying or redeeming a slave in order to set him free. And we are to buy up our time, our opportunity, the opportunity that God has given us and redeem it for God's glory. The word is in the middle voice here, meaning that we are to buy it up ourselves. It is a personal responsibility. We could even say that this is gospel living. It is a faith response to God's glorious grace. But we must not buy up our opportunity for our own purposes or our own desires, but for the Lord's service, but for God's glory. Dr. John MacArthur writes, when we walk obediently in the narrow way of the gospel, we walk carefully making the most of our time. We take full advantage of every opportunity to serve God, redeeming our time to use for his glory. We take every opportunity to shun sin and to follow righteousness. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. We only have today to live for his glory. We're only guaranteed today, so we are to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. And we could add to that, according to Peter, 1 Peter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. God has given you only one life to live for his glory Mothers and fathers, think of this. Your child will only be the very age that they're at today, only once. Live for Christ. Raise your children and the discipline and admonition of the Lord. You will only have this year, 2023, once to live for his glory. Walk in wisdom. Walk in his ways. Ephesians 5, 17, on account of this, he writes, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will is that we walk carefully and wisely, redeeming the time. We must not, folks, throw away our lives. It is this very text that ignited the first great awakening. In December of 1733, Jonathan Edwards preached on redeeming the time. And during the prior month, he had given two lectures on justification by faith that laid the foundation. Actually, Edwards was concerned about two enemies of the gospel, Arminianism and antinomianism. So he gave lectures refuting each, teaching that salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. He demonstrated that justification and sanctification are inseparably linked together. They're connected. He taught that we must not only enter the narrow gate, but then travel down the narrow road. That all who are justified are set apart and placed on a new path of righteousness. So the new birth is evidenced by a new heart and a changed life. He taught that we are new creations in Christ, 
basically striking a death blow to antinomianism, the belief that we can live as we please as believers. It's the belief that we can live as if God never gave us a law from which we are account. Then in December of 1733, he preached from Ephesians 5, redeeming the time. And that sermon sparked the first great awakening. Now consider this from the following verses of Ephesians, not on the screen, but just briefly, verse 18. Look at where he takes it with that context in mind. Look at where Paul takes this under the inspiration of God. Paul, in verse 18, admonishes us not to be drunk with wine, but filled with, controlled by the Spirit. Verse 19, Paul refers to the evidence. He begins to refer to the evidence of a Spirit-filled believer speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. In verse 21, submit, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another. A spirit-filled believer not only sings from the heart, not only do they always give thanks, but they submit to one another in the fear, that reverent fear of God. Then in verses 22 through 24, and we're being specific this morning, he turns to the wives and he teaches the principle of willing, joyful submission. The word submission means to arrange under. She is to submit, not because her husband is lording over her, but by the power of the Spirit, she willingly and joyously submits to him as unto the Lord. Every time a wife biblically submits to her own husband, she pictures the church submitting to Christ. And likewise, every time the husband sacrificially loves his wife as Christ loved the church, he pictures the love of Christ for his chosen bride. The husband is the head of the wife and the head of the home, and the wife is to arrange herself under his headship. That's the word of the living God. This is God's way, folks. This is God's plan for the husband and wife relationship. When a married couple functions as God commands, it's not, it's not only for their good, but they are again painting a beautiful portrait of the relationship between Christ and his church. It serves as a gospel message to every person on the face of the earth. Christians must paint this picture through godly Biblical marriages with husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, not lording over them. And the wife must willingly and freely and joyously submit to her, to her husband as the church submits to Christ. This is the divine foundation for the home and godly parenting. In Proverbs 31, we see an example of a godly wife and mother put on display for us. We find the advice that King Lemuel's mother gave to her son concerning how a virtuous king should reign as well as the wife that he should seek. It is the praise of an excellent wife 
the definition of a virtuous wife, a wife of valor. This excellent wife is the personification of wisdom. This chapter is recited every Friday night before Sabbath dinner in many Jewish homes. Even to this day, ancient Jewish tradition taught that this king is actually King Solomon, but no one is sure. That is simply speculation. This chapter, Proverbs 31, contains actually two poems, that of the wise king in verses 2 through 9, and the second, the excellent or virtuous wife in verses 10 through 31. Both are teachings of King Lemuel's godly mother, according to verse 1. In the second poem, the king's mother gives him advice for seeking a wife. As a loving mother, this lady, this mother, has her son's best interests in mind. As a godly woman, she has God's righteousness in mind. This poem is a beautiful picture of Scripture, in Scripture, I should say. And just like Psalm 25, as we've seen, is a Hebrew alphabetic acrostic using each of all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 13 poems like that in the Old Testament, by the way. This poem pictures the wife that you young men should seek with all your hearts and the godly wife and mother that you ladies must strive to be. We don't have time to exegete this in full, but we will run through it because Scripture speaks for itself. We will give a little bit of commentary. The writer begins with a question that the entire poem sets out to answer. In verse 10a, the excellent wife, an excellent wife who can find. By stating this in the form of a question, this mother implies that this excellent wife, this virtuous wife is rare. The words excellent wife is literally wife of valor. It's the idea of moral excellence and even purity, but it also means to be exceptional or heroic when facing a danger or a challenge. Now, not in war, but the dangers that face the family. The excellent wife is in contrast to the wicked, immoral, adulterous woman of Proverbs 1 through 9 and the nagging wife of Proverbs 21, 9. For Solomon writes, it is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. We won't say any more about that, but I've dealt with those situations. Well, let's quickly run through these verses. Verse 10b, for her worth is far above pearls. Her rarity, like pearls, makes her valuable. The value of the excellent wife is not just like pearls, but far above pearls. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. He does not maintain a jealous guard over her or over his valuables so that she cannot access them. No, He trusts her with his heart from his innermost being. He trusts his possessions that she's going to manage them well. 
Verse 12, she deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. You see, because she demonstrates complete loyalty to her husband in every respect, she is united with him in the support of his financial responsibilities and supports him in every way possible. She does that all the days of her life. She is faithful. She perseveres in her role, in her purpose, in her submission to his headship, to his leadership. Notice in the following verses, in verses 13 through 24, she's also hardworking and industrious as a homemaker. Verse 13, she searches for wool and flax and works with her hands in the light. She seeks materials and works with her hands to provide clothing for her family. Her family responsibilities are her first responsibility. She does so in delight, with great joy and with purpose. Her work is not a burden to her. Verse 14, she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Like a ship, distance is not an issue to her in getting food for her family. This implies her willingness, her determination. It implies an unhindered effort to provide food for her family. She is working together with her husband. Verse 15, she rises while it is still night. Think of that. And gives food to her household and a portion to her young women. Her beauty sleep, in other words, does not prevent her from preparing food for the family and even her maidens. She rises while it is still night. She has breakfast waiting for them when they arise. Verse 16, she makes plans for a field and buys it. From the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she's industrious by planning well in advance to provide food for her household. Think of the foresight in planning a field, buying a field and planning that field and the time that it will take to reap the reward. So she uses funds that she's apparently earned herself to buy the field and plant the vineyard. Again, planning for the future, working, planning, diligent to provide for her whole family. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's industrious by working hard. The difficulty of the task does not prevent her from accomplishing the work. She's determined. Laziness is not known to this woman. Verse 18, she senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. Again, she's industrious. Here, by working past dark to make clothing that is of excellent quality. She is redeeming the time, isn't she? She's redeeming the opportunity that God has given her. So she works from early morning to prepare breakfast to late at night to provide clothing for her family. Verses 19 and 20, she stretches out her hands to the distaffed. And her hands hold fast the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. So she not only reaches out her hands to make clothing for her family, she reaches out to the poor and needy to provide for them. This is a woman of valor, a woman of character, a woman of faith. 
She loves not only her family. She loves the needy. She's concerned for them, the less fortunate. Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She's not concerned about the coming winter weather, is she? She's prepared in advance clothing for them. She is blessed by God to provide that which is valuable. Garments of purple here, scarlet or purple. Garments dyed with valuable and possibly foreign dyes. Verse 22, she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So she also provides clothing for herself with fine linen, probably silk, and with purple. Seems to me that their expense must be a blessing for God for putting the needs of others first. God has blessed her for her hard work here. She is receiving the fruit of her labor. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. Because she, this excellent wife, this virtuous woman, has been faithful in her domestic responsibilities. She has promoted her husband's success and position in the community. Certainly a man's reputation stems from his home, from his wife. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and gives belts to the tradesmen. Again, she's industrious. By selling the works of her hands to provide. Her husband is not the only source of income in this home. She works from home. Now notice verse 25 through 28, her strength, her words, her reputation Verse 25, strength and majesty are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She clothes her family with warm and excellent clothing, but she is clothed personally in a more important way, with strength and majesty. This is the description of the woman who fears the Lord. This is the description of the excellent wife, the wife of valor. And she has confidence to face the future. She will be rewarded for her godliness. Verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom. And the instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. So when she speaks, she speaks wisely. Her words are kind. Corrupt speech comes from a hardened, corrupt heart. But godly speech comes from a regenerated heart. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is the overseer of her household, the manager, a skilled manager of the home she faithfully provides bread for her family but there's a bread that she refrains from the bread of idleness again she considers time precious as an opportunity to serve her family 
She redeems the time. She redeems the opportunity that God has given her. Verse 28 and 29. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done excellent, ex- excellently, but you have gone above them all. So her children bless her. She has earned their praise, and her husband sees her as more excellent than all the daughters of Jerusalem. Is he blind? No. This man is not deceived by love. She is truly far above all in her excellency. The excellent wife is worthy of praise. Notice she has a reverent fear of the Lord and is respected in the community in verses 30 and 31. Verse 30, we know this verse, don't we? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh She shall be praised. Charmer, a well-favored look, deceives. Beauty is vain, it's useless, and it's temporary. But a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 110. This is the divine description of a virtuous, excellent woman of valor, a wife. She has a reverent fear of the Lord and accepts the role that God has assigned to her. She's not concerned about what the world says. She's not a feminist. She does not care about what carnal so-called Christians have to say. She submits to her husband and works tirelessly to serve him and the children. She does so from early to late. She is virtuous. She is excellent in all her ways. Verse 31, give to her from the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You see, she is to benefit from the fruit of her labors. Her faithful labors should bring her praise in the public square. She is known not as the wicked, immoral, adulterous woman of Proverbs 1 through 9, nor as the nagging, contentious wife of Proverbs 31, but she is known as the excellent, virtuous wife of valor. She is worthy of the fruit of her labors. Her husband trusts her, and he praises her openly. Her children rise up and bless her. You see, she arranges herself under the husband's headship, and she serves him as unto the Lord. This is God's pattern. It doesn't matter what the world says. It matters what God has spoken. In Ephesians 5, those who are filled with the Spirit submit to one another in the fear of Christ. They are indwelled and empowered by the Spirit, not to walk according to the foolish so-called wisdom of the world, but to walk according to the wisdom of God, the wisdom that is from above, and to live in that role as God has ordained. I mean, who's going to be God in our lives? Is he going to be God, or are we going to say that he has it wrong? God has spoken 
And he has spoken clearly. He has spoken precisely. I can ask you this morning, if you're not indwelled by the Spirit, if God has not changed your life to walk in his ways, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you are not of him. We prove whether we are of him by the fruit that we bear, by whether we walk in his ways and as a habit of life, by whether we walk in wisdom for those that do not know the Lord. The command is to repent and believe. Understand that's in the context of the glorious gospel that declares to us that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are helpless to save ourselves. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a perfectly sinless life as the God man, truly God and truly man. And he went to the cross and he took the wrath of God that we deserve. You see, those who have sinned deserve the wrath of God, and we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ took our debt, our sin debt. He took our place. He bore our sins. He bore the wrath of God in our place that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's only in him that you will have life. It is only in him that you will be saved, that you will be free from your sin and their burdens, from the guilt of your sin and from the eternal consequences. It's only in Christ. There's nowhere else to look. There's no other hope. It is only in Christ. As believers, I challenge you this morning to redeem the time, the opportunity that God has given you, and faithfully serve him in the role that God has sovereignly determined for us. There are only two genders. There are only two roles in the marriage relationship. Let me declare to you this morning, Yahweh is sovereign. He knows exactly what he's doing, and we will give an account to him. If you know him, if the spirit of God lives in you this morning, will you join me in remembering the sacrificial death of our savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord, it is through his blood, the blood of the new covenant that we've been brought into an intimate relationship with God and with one another into the body of Christ and therefore into his blessings. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is in Christ. So as we gather around this table this morning, we worship him, the God of our salvation. We remember his death and we examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves. And when we do and remember his death, we certainly grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two elements in the, in the Lord's table, the bread and the wine. Grape juice is provided for the young and those who prefer it. The unleavened bread represents the sinless body of Christ that was broken by the wrath of God as he bore our sins, bringing us through his death into a glorious relationship with him. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. The bitterness reminds us of the wrath of God that was poured out upon God's own son. And its sweetness reminds us of God's abundant blessing. So the wine pictures that the Lord Jesus Christ took the wrath, the wrath intended for us 
the wrath that we earned, that we might have all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. If you're not born from above, please let the elements pass you by. And may your inability to partake remind you that you are outside the covenant of grace, outside his spiritual blessings, outside his salvation. And as believers, participate, celebrate our salvation through his death. May it be a time that you look to Christ. You repent of your sins and look to him and are born again by the power of the spirit. Those of us who are children of God, may we examine ourselves confessing any sins. May we turn our hearts upward to focus on the Lord's glory on his majesty on what he has done in our place, what he has done for us. And if we fail to examine ourselves, we will partake in an unworthy manner. And therefore we would be guilty of the body and blood of Christ and suffer the Lord's discipline. So let each of us this morning examine ourselves in a time of private prayer and worship Remembering the Lord's death, we will do this until he comes.